You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you want uh, to Matthew chapter 11. We'll be in just a few verses there in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel. And as you're turning there, I'll just go ahead and tell you a little bit of what we're going to talk about. I want to talk with you about expectations. Expectations. You've all got them. And I think in terms of me understanding my context, I know you've got them because probably half of you are Auburn fans and the other half are Alabama fans. And so every year, you crazy people expect a national championship. And apparently, you're not crazy because you all keep racking them up. I'm a Kentucky guy. We do not expect to be undefeated. Well, in basketball we do, but we don't even know what a football looks like. And so our expectations are being challenged right now. And if you're a Mississippi State fan, how are those expectations working out for you? I didn't do that in the earlier service. Trust me, that was just for you. I couldn't resist. Uh, Expectations, some of you are already judging me, like, oh, great, this guy. Expectations are powerful things, and and more seriously, I see expectations on a college campus all the time. I see the power of expectations on a college campus all the time. Let me tell you what I mean. Every fall, I get to see hundreds of freshmen show up, and each of them is is an individual. They all come with their own unique stories and backgrounds and expectations. And there's a sizable number of them uh, that come with this kind of set of expectations. Oh my goodness, everything is awesome. Uh, I get to live with my best friends in the dorm. I get to go to class. I get to build my schedule. I can choose my major. I get to eat in the cafeteria. I can go work out in this, in this new gym. I mean, I get to pick a church. I mean, everything is just amazing. There's ice cream in the cafeteria. Are you kidding me? Syllabus, class, oh yeah, that's great too, but really, ice cream in the cafeteria, I mean, there's just this kind of overwhelming sense of expectations and enthusiasm, and there's the expectation, maybe particularly at a Christian college, of you mean to tell me I get to be here and study, I'm a business major, but I also get to study the Bible and theology, so basically I'm going to grow so close with Jesus by next week that I won't even struggle with sin anymore. Right? And so these expectations, you start hearing this and you go, okay, tap the brakes just a little. Because what tends to happen is by about this time, you know, five, six weeks into the semester, reality kicks in. And if their expectations are misguided or unrealistic or underinformed, when reality confronts them, it has a way of being a bit jarring, to put it mildly. And, and if, you're, if you were a college student at one point, or maybe you're a parent with a student at a college or university right now, this is not unique to the campus where I serve. It's everywhere, right? Your daughter, your son calls at some point in the first semester, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> you're like, hang in there. It's going to be fine. Maybe you had some expectations that were a little unrealistic or misinformed. And if you can just make it to fall break, sweetie, it's all going to be fine. Um, That's common, by the way. Parents, don't tell your kids to come home when they call you with that phone call. Just say, hang in there. Press forward. Okay, that's for free. The Mississippi State fans already lost you. All right. So expectations, they're powerful forces. And I want to argue from the text that we're looking at this morning that our expectations when it comes to walking with and following Jesus are infinitely more significantly, infinitely more significant, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more important than our other expectations about whatever else it may be. 
your expectations about what it means to be a follower of Jesus have a lot to do with the kind of hope that you will experience as a Christian, the kind of joy that you experience as a Christian. They're very powerful. So let's look at this text. I'm going to read it. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 1 just so you have some of the context and read through uh, verse 6. So hear what, what Matthew writes for us by the Spirit. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied to him, to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Would you pray with me briefly? Father in heaven, right now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, here's the story. And if you're familiar with this story, you might just be kind of numb to it, but it's a rather jarring or unsettling story. I want to explain to you why. This has to do, I think, with this question of expectations. We're going to look at really two dynamics here. First, John's question. So if you're like a note taker type person, John's question and Jesus' answer. That's as simple as it gets, right? Question and answer. Why is, the, why is it so jarring, though? Well, let's look at John's question. Let me tell you the context, the situation. You get a little bit of it in, in verse 1. The situation is this. Jesus has moved, uh, Matthew tells us, he'd finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, and he moves on from there to teach and preach in their towns. What's he telling us? Jesus has gone back into Galilee. That's the region that the disciples, the majority of them were from. Galilee is this uh, kind of backwards region in the north uh, north of Judea and, and, and kind of where Jerusalem was, uh, this is kind of out of the way. Let's put it that way. And Jesus has retreated. He's gone back to Galilee to teach and to preach in their towns. And it is upon hearing that report, you can't miss this in the text, upon hearing about this development in Jesus' itinerary, that John sends his disciples with a question to investigate. His older cousin John, Jesus' older cousin John, hears this report and sends them with a simple question. Are you the one who is to come? Are you the one who is to come? In other words, as we even heard in, the, in, in Matt's prayer this morning, are you the one going all the way back to Genesis 3, the one, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and who was promised throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Christ. Are you him or should we expect someone else? I want to think through this question with you. Why is it so significant? Why is it even really jarring if you know the background here, if you've read the, the Gospels? Well, I think John had two problems here. He had first a theological problem. He had a theological problem. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, it had been John 
who God had sent as the last of the great prophets. John is presented for us in the Gospels as the, kind of the last of this long line of prophets throughout the Old Testament. John had been sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah or the Christ. He knew, he was conscious of this calling. There was no mystery to John about what his purpose or calling was. He knew, you can even read about it, uh, he says that he's not fit to untie the sandal straps of the one who would come after him. He knows he's not the Christ, he's not the Messiah, his job is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he knew and publicly proclaimed, remember the scene at the River Jordan? When he sees his little cousin Jesus coming toward the river for baptism, what does John cry out? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, John says, this Jesus is the Son of God in John 1.34. In other words, John in that moment previously had no theological confusion. He knows better than anyone. When everyone else is missing it, he points at his little cousin Jesus and he says, he's not just my cousin. <laughs> this one is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how, here's the question then, right? How do you get from that clarity, that prophetic clarity about who Jesus is and why he came into the world there at his baptism from John himself, from his own lips, to now this point where John's in prison saying, did I get it wrong? What had to happen between that moment and this moment? Well, you don't have to search too hard or speculate too deeply here, the, the text gives us some clues. Notice, again, it is the report about the change in Jesus' itinerary, so to speak, that provokes this question from John. In other words, why is Jesus up in Galilee? I think from the text that Jesus' ministry did not align with what John was expecting. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and he's up north in Galilee. Why, Jesus, aren't you down in Jerusalem, right, in the center of Israel, the capital city, the city of David? Why aren't you there rolling back the Roman occupation, right, claiming political power, gathering an army for yourself? That's what we've been counting on, right? We've been counting on for centuries a son of David who would come. And just like we read about in the Old Testament, that, the, that Israel, though small in number and weak in military power, through the presence and blessing of God, it would drive out enemies far more powerful, right? That's what we're waiting to see, Jesus. And you know this is a common misunderstanding throughout Jesus' ministry, Right? Not just from John the Baptist, routinely Jesus encounters his own disciples, the people closest to him, have this theological confusion. They're expecting a different kind of Jesus. Even after the resurrection, get this, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has literally been raised from the dead. He's walking around. He's, he's performing all kinds of miracles. He has a, a, a resurrected body. And what do the disciples say to him in Acts chapter 1? Are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> like, is, is the show about to, is the real show about to start now? Like the crucifixion and resurrection, that was cool, Jesus, but now we're waiting, to, we got our swords ready and we're ready to go do this thing. Peter's ready, he's, he's been ready. And Jesus has to remind them, no, that's not what this is about. 
They expected the Messiah to come with political power and might. They expected that the son or heir of David would look like and rule like David ruled. And here's Jesus up in Galilee? Are you kidding me? He's not mobilizing troops. He's not gathering an army for himself. He's teaching and preaching. And what in the world is that supposed to do for me, Jesus? And this kind of theological confusion is all around us today, isn't it? It's all around us. Some expect a therapeutic Jesus. What's a therapeutic Jesus? This is the Jesus who comes into your life to make it just a little sweeter. Like you can have everything that you want, but Jesus is like a little additive who you can kind of sprinkle in, and he just makes everything a little bit better. So what's the secret to having a great career? To just add a little Jesus. You, do you have anxiety problems? Guess what? Who doesn't? Again, just add a little Jesus. But then this, the real Jesus starts talking about sin and the wickedness of the human heart. And we're, we don't like that Jesus. Or maybe it's not the therapeutic Jesus. Maybe it's uh, you, you expect a political Jesus. Kind of like we've been talking about here. I think, by the way, this happens on all corners of the political spectrum in our culture. Right? Some expect a, a political Jesus who comes to overthrow systems of power and injustice and oppression. But then he starts talking about the need for personal salvation, to pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and that following him will mean death for his disciples. And we're like, I don't like that Jesus. Others, maybe on a different part of the political spectrum, we kind of have our own political Jesus. We think, well, no, Jesus is here to make sure that we keep power in the culture. And we feel like we're being pushed as a minority. We're being persecuted. So political Jesus needs to come in and he needs to give us a seat at the table of power so that we can can recover things. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, I've been doing this a lot longer than you have. My church... The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I am building my church. And empires will come and empires will go, but my church will remain. So don't you worry about who's in the Oval Office because I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. Some expect uh, what we call, could call a fire insurance Jesus. Maybe you know this Jesus. This is the, fi- the fire insurance Jesus offers you and me an escape ticket from hell if you kind of pray a magical prayer, and, uh, but you have no room with this Jesus. You have no room for a Jesus who calls you to live a life of repentance, who calls you to follow him as Lord and to fundamentally change the way you live and see the world, to pick up your cross daily and follow him. When we hear that, we go, I don't know about that Jesus. Some expect a moral teacher Jesus. Our, our, our culture loves this one. Well, kind of. This is the Jesus who gives us a a virtuous example, right, of how to live and treat other people, a good ethical example. But then this Jesus, the real Jesus of the scriptures, he starts talking about the main reason he came and describing how he has to die on a cross to take on himself the wrath of God for sinners, and we get freaked out. No, 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 Jesus, I don't want that. I don't want the bloody cross, Jesus. I want the, you know, turn the other cheek, Jesus. Well, most of the time. We have theological confusion about Jesus all around us in the culture. And if we're honest, this morning, 
it's not just a problem out there, is it? It's a problem in here and in here. Even as Christians, as followers of Jesus, like John, we can be squeezed by the culture and have theological confusion about who Jesus is and why he came into the world and what he's doing right now in the world. But John has more, I think, than just a theological problem. And my guess is you and I have more than just or merely a theological problem. He has a personal problem. To put it a different way, his concern is not merely abstract or theological. It's personal. Why? The text tells you. He's in jail. (laughs) He's locked up in prison. And in Matthew 14... You discover why. If you read along later this afternoon, you'll you'll read the story. Why is John, this prophet of God who's called to come and prepare the way for the Messiah, what in the world is he doing in jail? Well, Matthew tells us. King Herod, or Herod Antipas, he really was kind of like a little tiny king, had gotten fed up with him. John, we're told in, in, in Matthew 14 and in Mark 6, John had been faithful to speak up and to speak out on behalf of biblical truth. Here's the situation. Herod um, had taken as his wife a woman named Herodias, which is a little weird, right? Herod and Herodias, but whatever. Um, He takes as his wife his brother's wife. So Philip, his brother, he, he convinces Herodias, leave my brother, abandon him, divorce him, and marry me. We'll get married, right? We'll be happy together. And she does it. And John, as a prophet of God, he says, he speaks out boldly, and he says, this is not right, right? Sexual immorality matters to God, and it matters to the, among those who are in leadership. And it doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter what you think is going to make you happy, Herod. It doesn't matter. This is a big deal, and it is contrary to God's design and to his will. And guess what? Just like today... Back then, John didn't win a popularity contest when he did did this. He is locked up, put into prison, and we're told in Mark's account, even a little more fully, Herodias, this woman, is seething, waiting for an opportunity to take take vengeance on him. He pays a price for his courage. He pays a price for speaking the truth. He pays a price for his faithfulness. That's the problem. He's in jail. Because he's been faithful. And you need to realize, again, in the first century, if you're in a, in a prison cell, in a castle, or in some sort of fortress in, in Palestine in the first century, this is not easy. Uh, commentators estimate he probably at this point had been locked up for about six months. So he is deteriorating in every way. He's probably deteriorating physically in his health. He's deteri- deteriorating psychologically and emotionally. I mean, if you can imagine what that would be like, he is struggling So the question from John to Jesus is deeply personal. It's something like this. Jesus, if you are the Christ, why are you up there in Galilee and I'm down here and have been here, locked up? Why are you up there with the uneducated poor of Galilee And I'm down here locked up unjustly by this phony fraud of a king because I've been faithful to my mission to God. Is this what I get? Is this Jesus, cousin, is this how the deal works? Is this how it ends for me? What are you doing? 
John looked at his circumstances right there in that prison cell and was perplexed, I think. Did I get it wrong? Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe he's just cousin Jesus. Has my ministry, my life been misguided and in vain? I think is the question that haunts this. And if you follow Jesus, I can tell you, you will find yourself at this point at some time in the future, if you haven't already. You may not end up in a prison cell, but there will come a time where you will be forced and you will feel the urgency of the question, is it really you or should I be looking for someone else? Following Jesus does not exempt you from suffering, right? I got at least one amen. There were no amens in the first service, but y'all, some of y'all have suffered. Okay, following Jesus doesn't exempt you from suffering. And when suffering comes into your life, even when you suffer justly, as a Christian, you do the right thing and things don't work out the way you think that you know they should, you might be tempted to ask the question John's asking. But it's even suffering in general. Your body, you know this, some of you know it very well, your body will grow weak. Your body will fail you. You, you'll find yourself in exam rooms and a doctor will come in with a tablet and he'll say, I've, I've got some bad news. And you'll hear words like terminal, and cancer, or you'll be sitting there by a loved one who's hearing it, maybe even a child. Your career might not work out the way you expected. That, that vision and imagination and professional track that you thought you'd be on never materialized. The promotion that you thought was right ahead of you, that door suddenly got closed. The layoffs that you never thought would hit you suddenly did. And you're just barely hanging on on your bank account wondering if you can even pay the bills. Or maybe you just find yourself in a job that you hate. Your family, your family's going to struggle. The family maybe even just that you longed for that never materialized, the, the marriage that you have prayed for and that the Lord has withheld, the child that, that you've prayed for and you, the Lord has taken you through the path of infertility. Marriages will fray. Your kids might wander far from home and even break your heart. And things just won't turn out the way you expected at home. Some of you have been through that. I know that because you're human in a room like this. And you'll find that others, even those who claim the name of Christ, will insult you, they'll slander you, and your heart will break. And in those moments, just think about those, those few examples that we just walked through together. In those moments, maybe even this week, maybe even this morning, your heart will be pulled in a certain direction. And you might be tempted to start wondering, are you really the one, Jesus? Are you really him? Can I really entrust myself to you? Or should I hold on and wait for someone else, something else? Is this all a joke, one big cruel joke? Is this really what I signed up for? Why is that? Because just like John... 
For you and for me, your circumstances will tempt you to doubt that Jesus really is who he says he is. Your circumstances will tempt you to doubt that he cares for you the way he says he cares for you. Your circumstances will tempt you to doubt that the things he has promised will happen, will really happen. So whether theological or personal, whatever the problems, and I think for most of us it's a, it's a mashup of both, just as it was for John. What we most need, what John most needed, is a word from Jesus himself. When you face those difficulties, what you need is not a poll or a survey. You need to hear from Jesus himself. And it says something about John that he doesn't fool around here. He says, I know what you got to do. Guys, go find Jesus and let him settle it. Ask him. And that's what we've got to do this morning. Only Jesus can set the record straight for us. So let's look at Jesus' answer. Let's look at it together. Jesus replies with two kind of things going on here. One is a report. The other is what you could call a beatitude or a pronouncement of blessing. You heard that as I read it. Look at the report first. Jesus tells John's disciples, go, right, go back to John, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Now you might think that's just Jesus doing kind of Jesus talk, right? Uh, this is how he talks. Well, there's a lot going on here kind of behind the surface, um, more than you and I might realize. Jesus tells John's disciples to listen and to watch, right? Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. What have they seen and heard? It's this teaching ministry. It's these miraculous signs that have characterized Jesus' ministry. And if you were to go back in the preceding chapters in Matthew's gospel, you'd find everything that Jesus talks about here in this little summary has actually been happening. It's all been happening. It really is happening. Well, what's, what's Jesus doing here? As you read the gospels, you find, again, that misplaced expectations about Jesus' ministry and the, the nature of who the Messiah would be and what he would do are pervasive throughout the, the Gospels. Jesus encounters them all the time. What's his mission? Why did he even come into the world? And what you realize when you read the Gospels is that sometimes the confusion that is the most pronounced is by those who are closest to Jesus. It's his own disciples. It's his own cousin, John. They're the ones who seem to be the most rattled by this confusion. And Jesus, though, here gives an answer to John's disciples to take back to John that I think is custom-fitted or tailor-made for his, his older cousin. He doesn't just give kind of a generic, like, you know, this is what I say when people ask me this, so tell it to him. No, he gives, I think, a custom-fitted report for John the Baptist. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. In a sentence, Jesus rehearses explicit Old Testament promises about who the Messiah would be and what he would do. Let me give you an example. Uh, most of them come right out of Isaiah. Here's from Isaiah 29, 18. The deaf shall hear, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 61, 1. Good news to the poor, right? That's gospel to the poor. Isaiah 26, 10. The dead shall rise in this messianic age when he comes. What's Jesus doing? He's taking 
this promise, these promises in Isaiah in the Old Testament, and he's pointing to his ministry and he's telling his cousin, it is happening. It's really happening. You might be locked up, John, in a prison, and so you may not have gotten the word about this, but it's all happening. I think he's also kind of saying here, John, you of all people, you know your Old Testament. You know the scriptures. John probably had them committed to memory. So when he starts using this language to say, tell John this is what's happening, John immediately would have heard him go, that sure sounds like Isaiah. That sounds like those promises in Isaiah. In other words, Jesus is telling him, remember your Bible. Remember what it says about me. Don't lose heart. Don't be distracted. Don't be misled by your circumstances. And then he sums it all up with a beatitude, right? A pronouncement of blessing. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What's that about? Well, if you've read the Gospels, you know there are a number of beatitudes, these pronouncements of blessings that Jesus makes. And most of the time they're in a positive format, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are the peacemakers, right? They're, they're positive statements. This one's different. This is a, in a negative form. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. I think the way to read that is that the, the assumption is that your natural condition, that the majority of humanity is offended by him. Right, Just as we're not naturally peacemakers, so Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, because guess what? Your default instinct and inclination is not to be a peacemaker. Right? So in the same way, in a parallel way, he's saying, blessed are those who are not offended by me, because guess what? You are by nature, your natural inclination is to be offended, or some translations will say, scandalized by me. So let me just pause here. If you're here this morning, And you've maybe been exploring Christianity, you've been to church before, it's your first time, I don't know, and you've had some exposure to this person of Jesus, but you're not really sure what to make of him. This is hard to deal with. Your heart is so broken, my heart is so broken, that apart from God's work in your life, through his Holy Spirit to transform and renew you, to give you a new heart, really, is how the Bible talks about it, you will be scandalized by the biblical Jesus. That's why, by the way, there's all that theological confusion. We want to make Jesus in our own image so that we're not offended by him. But Jesus says, if you take me on my own terms, if you take me in my fullness about who I really am as king of the universe and the one who will die in the place of sinners to reconcile them to God, you will not be offended by me and you will be blessed. You'll be happy, blissful. That's the path to happiness. That's the path to blessing. Now get this. What he doesn't say to John is, just hang in there a little longer, John. Like, I'm going to get to it. He doesn't say, you know, turn your uh, disaster into destiny or something like this. And there's no prosperity theology here. Like, well, John, you know, if you'd asked for it in faith, it would have happened. But apparently, no, no, he doesn't do that. This is no, you know, turn your, your tragedy into triumph thing. What's he say? John, it actually is happening. It really is happening. It really is me. You can trust me. It's a call to trust Jesus, to take him at his word, to believe that no matter what our eyes might tell us in the middle of our circumstances, that he really is the true king, the God-man, the one who died once for all to make purifications for sins, and then he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. 
So again, if you're not asking John's question today, at some point, you likely will. Maybe you are asking it this morning. I just want to, as we wrap this up, I'll be in my seat in just a minute. I want you to notice the tenderness and the graciousness and the kindness in Jesus' response. Notice that Jesus is not disturbed by the question. He's not offended by it. I mean, let's just be honest. If it was me, if I was Jesus, right? That's always a dangerous way to start a sentence. If I was Jesus, what would you do? He sends the messengers back with a clear and direct reply to John. Tell him this, right? But it's meant to encourage him. It's meant to remind him of the truth. It's not for real, John, seriously. Like, we have known each other since I was a baby. We've, ha- we've, been, we've spent time at family reunions. You've never seen me sin. You know I'm without sin. I'm perfect. I mean, it was kind of a little awkward for the rest of the cousins because I was always the good cousin. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you know, John, you basically have like a PhD in theology. You should have this figured out. Shame on you. How dare you question this, John? He doesn't do that. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't push him away. He doesn't say, you know what, John, just stay there and rot in the prison cell because I don't have time for people like you who are so weak in your faith. Don't you see, I'm out here casting out demons and raising the sick and the dead. I don't have time for this. You know how busy I am? I can't even get a nap in. No. He takes the time and he has the grace and the mercy to send a tailor-made, perfectly fitted message to reassure his cousin who's locked up in that prison cell, to remind him of the truth, to exhort him to faithfulness. And he's doing the same thing in this room this morning to you through his word. He is lovingly telling you, don't lose heart. Don't let your eyes deceive you. Don't let your bank account deceive you. Don't let the medical diagnosis deceive you. Don't let the pain that you're feeling even this morning about this loved one or this family member, this situation, don't let that cause you to drift from your course. John's circumstances didn't change. I'd like to tell you, I honestly would, I'd like to tell you that, well, the story goes this way. Jesus eventually kind of wraps things up in Galilee. Then he goes and they spring John loose and it's kind of like this great movie ending. John, you know, it all worked out, you know, everything happens for a reason. So, hey, great. It didn't. What happens? We, we don't know how much time went on after this, but at some point between when John gets this report back, whether it's days or weeks, I don't know, but at some point John finds himself face to face with an executioner who will remove his head from his body and put it on a silver platter to give as a trophy to a dancing girl and her mother. That actually happened. John's circumstances didn't get any better. They didn't change for the better. There was no moment in John's earthly life where he could look back and say, you know what, I thought I was a goner there, but hey, look, it worked out. Maybe today you're asking the question, in the middle of trial, in the middle of suffering, of discouragement. Jesus, are you really the one? Because I feel like I'm barely hanging on. And the message isn't, well, just hang on because he's going to turn your lemons into lemonade. That's not Christianity. How many missionaries, Brook Hills, how many missionaries do you know? I know you know these stories because they're, they're wonderful stories in Christian history. How many missionaries have gone out over the globe over the last 2,000 years and have never seen a convert or have been martyrs for the faith? And they've asked the question, is this, is this in vain? You know, William Carey, is this in vain? 
Is my life wasted? It's never wasted. Nothing's wasted. The answer to me and to you is the same as it was to John. We are called to take Jesus on his own terms. And let me tell you, when you take this Jesus on his own terms, it's infinitely better than anything you could dare imagine. He's infinitely more wonderful than anything you could ever imagine. No one else can take away your sin, your guilt, and give you a perfect righteousness before God. No one else can wash you, cleanse you, purify you. And he knows everything that you did, everything that you did, everything you did last night. And he alone can wash you and purify you and make you a new creature. Only he can do that. No one else can reconcile you to God. You and I were enemies. We weren't like neutral toward God. We were enemies of God, hostile against him. Only Jesus can reconcile us to God. No one else can give you a future and a hope. You realize that this morning, if you're a Christian, before Jesus came into your life and saved you, you had no hope. Your future was hopeless. Now, I'm not talking about just the next few weeks or years or even decades. I'm talking about your eternal future. You were doomed and destined for an eternity of righteous judgment that you could never get out of. And the world right now is full of billions of people in that category who have no hope. And the only reason that you have a future and a hope is because of Jesus. No one else can assure you and me that death no longer has the final say. No matter what the doctors say, no matter what the diagnosis is, death, even if you are buried, even if you get your head cut off, in other words, death doesn't have the final say. There is coming a day when all the saints of God will be raised bodily and John's head, I don't know how this is going to work, but it will be reattached to his body. No one else can set you free from the slavery to sin. You know that? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you keep going, I don't know. I, it's like I, I cannot get free. I can't. I'm trapped. I'm stuck. And maybe even as a Christian, you're, you're still struggling, right? We all struggle. No one else can liberate you from your slavery to your sin. You can't do it for yourself. You can't just decide one day, you know, I'm, just, I'm going to change my life. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be a different person. You can't do that. You're dead in your sins. You're chained in them. Only Jesus can break those and set you free by his grace and by his power. No one else can take you, an orphan, somebody who had no family, and make you by his grace, he can adopt you as a daughter or son of the king. No one else can do that. Change your identity, change your status, change your future, only through the grace of God's adopting grace in the gospel. No one can do that but Jesus. There is no one else. To whom else shall we go, right? There is only Jesus the Christ. And blessed, happy, joyful is the one who is not offended by him. 